0: Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's
1: answer.
2: Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice.
1: The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, The Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matchett, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper and with me this week, as always, is Alistair Grant, our Political Editor. Apologies in advance if my voice fails me or I sound like I've walked about 10 metres away from the microphone, that is due to the fact I have been ill and I still don't feel very well and my voice is struggling along. It's been a monumentous week in Scottish politics, I think, Uh, particularly today, Thursday, as we record this, Alistair. We'll come to the events of Westminster and Boris Johnson's appearance in front of the Privilege Committee later on when we hear from Alex Brown, but let's focus in on what happened today at Parliament, which was the final FMQs and the final goodbye... Um, from the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon?
2: Very much the end of an era, I think. The end of uh, the Sturgeon era, mm. as I think Douglas Ross put it. Um, Nicola Sturgeon is someone who, wherever you think of her, she's defined modern Scottish politics for years now. She's kind of dominated the political debate. Uh, she's eclipsed her rivals in many ways. I think, I mean, we we'll can probably get on to talk about FMQs specifically, First Minister's Questions, which happened today as we record this. Uh, it was probably one of the most bad tempered FMQs I've seen in a Absolutely. while. So I thought yeah. it was interesting that on her last day, she kind of leaves with uh, the divisions in Scottish politics on full show to so had Douglas Ross, the Scottish Tory leader, essentially accusing uh, the SNP of lying about its membership figures. We obviously ha- had that big row that broke uh, at the weekend, last weekend, just there, led to the resignation of Peter Murrell, the SNP's chief executive, and Nicola Sturgeon's husband. Um, over that kind of row over their, their membership figures and that 30,000 they lost over the space of just over a year. Um, but we also had, uh, so Douglas Ross, first of all, kind of trashing her record, And then Anna Starwar again, crit- very critical of her record, pointing to records, any waiting times, record homelessness, um, a culture of, I think he said, secrecy and cover-up um, and essentially calling for a Holyrood election. Yeah. So you had all of that. You had this, frankly, stormy FMQs that the presiding officer, Alison Johnson, had to repeatedly intervene on, specifically to ask Douglas Ross to stop using the word lie, which is a long-standing convention in FMQs and indeed Prime Minister's questions in Westminster that you don't accuse people of lying. So we had that stormy FMQs, and then immediately after that, in a kind of jarring change of tone, we had Nicola Sturgeon's kind of valedictory speech, her farewell speech, Mm. her last speech as First Minister in Holyrood, eh, in which she kind of thanked her staff, her family, um, paid kind of emotional tribute actually to her kind of core team and to John Swinney, Deputy First Minister, um, who I think she said was the best deputy she could have had and the best friend she could have had. Um, there was moments where she seemed very much on the verge of tears. You could mm. really see the emotion choking her voice um, and essentially seeing, almost kind of listing her record as her, um, her achievements in office in a way as well and pointing to uh, her time during the pandemic, which I think she quite rightly identified as the thing that will probably uh, be most associated with her legacy going forward. Um, so we had that, and obviously the Douglas Ross and Anna Sauer then replying on behalf of their parties and paying their own tributes, but very much tempered with a sprinkling of criticism. And it was just quite a, a funny combination to have that FMQs and then that kind of farewell speech straight after each other.
1: Well, let's, let's focus in on FMQs first, because that was first today, um, which was something where, as you said, Douglas Ross effectively said that the, well, he didn't effectively say, he just did say that the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon had been lying to the public and to the press. As you mentioned, Peter Morrell, her husband, had to resign over this uh, from his position as CEO, as did Murray Foote, the director of comms or the head of comms at, at the SNP. Um, it was, I don't, I don't know what you think, but I think there'll be a lot of people on the SNP side of things who were maybe a bit surprised at the, strength of the wording from Douglas Ross and how on the attack and on the offensive he was on the last FMQs um, and I suppose that could probably be extended to Anasaro as well um, but we'll come to him after that in a, in a bit. Um, do you think that it was the right call for Douglas Ross to go in as hard as he did because he got rebuked quite in, a, in an embarrassing number of times by Alison Johnston for, for his choice of language?
2: I think he knew he'd be rebuked for using that kind of language, and you could see that. Uh, yeah, I would have thought they'd have seen that coming. Mm. I'm sure they did. Uh, I think probably you know SNP supporters, SNP MSPs certainly didn't like it. No. Uh, but from his point of view, you know, going in hard on that kind of thing is is going to go down well with the Conservative benches. It's going to go down, down well with his supporters.
1: And it, it set it set the tone, didn't it, for his last qu- last couple of questions on her record? Because he basically went, you know. Shameless spin from the government, from the from Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP, has what is what has defined her time in in power.
2: Yeah, it was a as I say, it was probably the stormiest FMQs I can remember in quite a few weeks, potentially months. Actually, it was just very, very bad-tempered. Um, lots of G giri- The chamber was so noisy. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, particularly from the SNP benches, uh, but yeah, I mean, he definitely went in with both feet. He did not hold back, and I think this row. Um, is a kind of gift to the Tories in a lot of ways because it plays into this whole idea that the S&P are secretive, they uh, are not being honest with the public, uh, pointlessly secretive, I guess, because there's big question marks over why they even let this row develop to the extent that it did. And as you say, allowed him to go in and then kind of draw attention to what the Conservatives would certainly see as the failings in her record. But it didn't feel like a last FMQs at all. No. Um, I mean, I wasn't a journalist or certainly not a political journalist when Alex Salmond, uh, had his last FMQs, but um, I, I would be surprised if it was as kind of bad-tempered and cutthroat as that one seemed to be. It just, as I say, it, it just really laid bare the divisions in Scottish politics. I mean, this is the end of the Nicola Sturgeon era, um, and it, you know, Scottish politics is as divided as ever. Whoever comes in as the new first minister is going to have to is going to have to deal with that kind of climate. And I thought it was notable, and we'll probably get onto this again, in Nicola Sturgeon's farewell speech. he had a a kind of appeal for more yeah. kindness in politics, um, and it's the kind of thing that is a a nice sentiment. I'm sure there's lots of people out there who would agree with it that we shouldn't. Um, I think the words she used is remember we're opponents, and not enemies. Many people would agree with that, but it's it's going to fall on deaf ears. You know, this the new era of Scottish politics is not going to be defined by a kinder political culture. I think you know there's many things we don't know about the future and now. What well, this new year is going to look like, but I think that is one thing we can say for certain.
1: A depressing outlook from uh, Alistair Grant there, uh, but we'll focus in. We'll come back to her kind of a couple of pleas from her from her from Nicholas Sturgeon in her farewell speeches, um, which we'll come back to after we hear from Alex. But let's return to FMQs and do. Do you think Anna Sawa? You know, on the on the. Other side of the opposition benches you know he made the case for a, a snap hollywood election now the, the rules around that are complex in how that would happen but it effectively requires you know the parliament to refuse to have a first minister for at least 28 days which due to the way that voting works for first ministers, is actually quite hard to to get to that point point. Um, it would involve effectively cross-party working to ensure that no one got voted in as First Minister. Do you think that that is a clever strategy for Manas? Because he clearly sees the SNP as having been weakened during this leadership contest, and he clearly sees an opportunity to make that same sort of case as the SNP did as Boris Boris Johnson was being pushed out of, they have failed, and they have failed you, as in you the voter... Time for you to have your say on these new leaders um, going forward. Do you think that is a clever strategy from, from Sarwar?
2: Well, it's just a tried and tested political technique to use uh, party leaders' words against them. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically read out what Nicholas Sturgeon had said on the example of the Tory party and say, Do you agree with that in the case of uh, this leadership contest? In that way, it's, I mean, Anna Sarwar has nothing to lose by mm-hmm. calling for a, a Holyrood election. The SNP are deeply divided. We've gone through this. Intensely bruising leadership contest that in many ways uh, couldn't have gone, I mean, it probably could have gone worse actually for them, but it, it has gone extremely badly for the party.
1: Um, it's been uncomfortable, hasn't it, from day one?
2: It's been intensely uncomfortable. Yeah. There's been really bad tempered exchanges. We've had, you know, we've gone through this in previous podcasts, but uh, Kate Forbes, the finance secretary, laying into Hamza Yusuf the health secretary's record as cabinet minister on cabinet minister. Um, Kate Forbes essentially dismissing the record of the Scottish Government under which she served. Um, you've had real divisions opening up, and as far as the opposition are concerned, this would be a great time for an election for them. Especially when you've got Labour in the ascendancy down south, and this feeling that Keir Starmer is the next first, the next Prime Minister, Sorry, uh, and the benefits that certainly Anna Sarwar sees that that could play into his party in, in Scotland. You know, he's got nothing to to lose by calling for that kind of thing.
1: It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, the rules of Holyrood would see, if if there was a snap election, would simply see that first minister re-elected as or elected a new one um, for a three-year term until 2026. It doesn't reset for another five years, as far as I'm aware. So it gives Anasawa a chance, if that was to happen, to really make a statement ahead of 2026 and potentially... You know, appear more so as a government in waiting, which at the minute is probably their biggest weakness in Holyrood, is that they don't appear as a government in waiting.
2: Well, you'd also have the SNP fighting an election with a new leader who's not tried and tested, who doesn't have the public profile that Nicola Sturgeon has, certainly doesn't have the popular support that Nicola Sturgeon has and is leading a party that's just gone through an intensely bruising leadership contest in public view. arguing among itself in the public view, um, and they're going to have to bring that party together and then talk to the public at the same time mm-hmm it would be extremely difficult for whoever the new leader is. And, you know, we've obviously talked about this before, but Kate Forbes leading the party presents its own problems in terms of the divisions that might cause. But Hamza Youssef, seen as a continuity candidate, also brings its own problems. You know, he's not someone that's got the best approval ratings among the Scottish public. He's maybe associated with tough government jobs that maybe there's a perception among some that he's not done that well on. He has to convince the Scottish public to back him and trust him. And that's something that's going to take time for him to bed in. The last thing he wants to be doing is rushing straight into another election.
1: Absolutely. And that's probably why we won't have another election, um, given it would require the SNP to agree effectively to it due to the, the voting systems in place. Let's hear now, let's take a quick break from the Holyrood bubble and the Holyrood world and head down to Westminster. Also, the drama of a former, fir- former prime minister being hauled in front of a standards committee to talk about his conduct while in public
0: office. Alex. Hello and welcome back to the Westminster section podcast. My name is Alexander Brown. I'm the Westminster Correspondent Scotsman. And this week, like every week for the past 10 years of our lives, the whole story in town has been Boris Johnson. He appeared before the Privileges Committee where he explained in great detail exactly why he didn't break the rule. No, 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 that's not what happened. He said that work events uh, such as having drinks were essential. He argued with a straight face and with £220,000 of taxpayers' money towards his legal costs that going to leaving drinks where he's seen raising a glass, toasting colleagues, And just generally seemingly having a lovely good old time during a pandemic when people couldn't say goodbye to their dying loved ones, that that was an essential work event. And it was uh, mortifying, really. He arrived to loud cheers from his supporters. Jacob Rees-Mogg was there because he doesn't have anything else to do now beyond a GB news show because it's a great way to supplement your income when you already have numerous investments, etc., etc. I don't know, stocks, something like that. Uh, and this support was uh, not; didn't really last. The idea was that we would hear from him and then we would hear from supportive MPs after. They were going to line the lobby corridor and tell all of us lucky, lucky lobby journalists just what a fantastic job he did and how he was just a man, an innocent man. Unfortunately, only one of them turned up and really the mood of the Tory party is now he's gone. There will be no comeback I would say a month ago, maybe 100 MPs would have supported Boris Johnson coming back to be a leader. Now it could be even lower than 30. I mean, it was a disastrous performance. He had all this legal advice, and then you could see Lord Panic quite literally panicking behind him, uh, rolling his eyes and shaking his head as his client got progressively angrier. He shouted at um, Harriet Harman, the chair of the committee. He repeatedly refused to rule out when asked... To say that it was not a kangaroo court, he went, well, I, well I'll, I'll see after. I mean, I'll wait for your judgment. I presume you'll be fair, but... <laughs> um, or at least he did it in his own accent. So it was quite mortifying, really, as a spectacle and one that Rishi Sunak will have hoped to avoid. At the same time as this happening, uh, Rishi Sunak was having a vote on his, not so much the Windsor framework, but on the Stormont break. Uh, and Boris Johnson was voting against it. Liz Truss was voting against it. You know, all these people whose political instincts have been so brilliant for the past 18 months and it passed without a hitch. There was a minor Tory rebellion, but on a day that could have been damaging for Mr Sunak, he basically avoided any real problems. He publishes tax returns, which are frankly grotesque. Um, I think he paid a a normal amount for a normal person, not an amount for someone who was making three million pounds from all his extra investments. And it was a pretty pretty good week for Sunak. Uh, Boris Johnson now faces... He will find out if he's misled Parliament in, in a few weeks' time. He could get suspended from the sounds of even the Tory MPs. The committee is majority-led. It sounds like he probably will. And uh, it's more than 10 days. There could be a by-election in his seat, which all projections show he's going to lose anyway. So if that happens, we may go a week or even at least a few hours not talking about Boris Johnson, which would be lovely. I would say. Um, So fingers crossed, we can only hope for that. And for all that and more, uh, stay tuned to thescotsman.com. And until next week, thank you so much for listening.
1: Thank you very much, Alex, for that fantastic update from London. Um, We mentioned earlier, Alistair, that we would talk about Nicola Sturgeon's farewell speech. It was her last um, contribution in the Scottish Parliament as First Minister. She'll... Presumably, be giving plenty of contributions from the backbenches until twenty twenty six, unless she resigns that position from from an earlier date. And um, but she made two kind of clear pleas among many thanks of all the people that she'd worked with, um, along the way. She made two clear pleas. One of which was a, effectively a plea for unity, wasn't it within within the SNP? It was a you know we we've come a long way since our, our early doors of. Um, of, of being on 12% in the polls when he, when she was 16 to being a government. You know, let's continue this work together. I thought that was quite pointed. And then we also had the, the, the plea that you referred to earlier of for more kindness in politics. Both of those pleas are probably going to be ignored, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was notable. Obviously, her last speech wanted to set a particular tone. I thought parts of it were actually quite moving. I think, as I mentioned earlier, particularly that tribute to John Swinney and the mm. tribute to that kind of core... Um, I think it was three particular staff members that said had been with her from the start and it's been a kind of core her during the pandemic, and you could really see the emotion in her voice. And I think that those were the two moments where she came closest to, I think, uh, actually crying in the Absolutely. chamber. Actually, kind of, she you could close, hear, yeah, yeah. yeah, you could hear the emotion in her voice. And it's a reminder that politicians are human, and holding high office does take a kind of toll in that regard. But yeah, she had these two messages. Obviously, one of them quite pointed towards the. Kind of leadership election and the other one just a wider point about Scottish politics and the, the kind of way that Scottish politics is conducted and I think both like you say great sentiments but probably unlikely to be heeded and um, particularly uh, the latter on the kind of the state of Scottish political debate I mean it's been we've been a divided country for so long now it's sort of what we're used to mm. I think the point that Nicola Sturgeon was making about uh, the SNP when she joined I think she was talking about afterwards when she was talking to journalists outside the chamber. She was talking about that first meeting she went along to, uh, first SNP meeting, um, and where the party stood then in the polls compared to now. And it has been a huge change. And she's almost saying to them, you know, don't forget how far we've come. Uh, and you certainly don't want to start going backwards. But yeah, it was uh, definitely parts of it, quite a, quite a moving speech, I think.
1: Absolutely. And it was interesting to hear opposition members and also SNP members, Emma Roddick, gave... Um, a speech uh, in the chamber on behalf of a, the SNP because each of the parties got, got to say something after Nicola Sturgeon did. And I have to say, you know, the the SNP backbenchers get rightly criticised for standing up in the middle of debates and in the middle of questions, uh, question sessions and reading stiltedly from a piece of paper, not really knowing or caring what they're actually saying. Um, but Emma Roddick, you know, one of the youngest, I think, if not the youngest, yeah. um, MSP in, 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 in Parliament, you know, and gave this very heartfelt tribute to, to Nicola Sturgeon, who, you know, she first met um, when she was 17 in a a meeting when she would say that Nicola Sturgeon gave her the, the drive and singled her out to say, you know, you should get involved in politics, et etc. Et it was a very heartfelt speech and it was excellently delivered without any notes. And it was fantastic. It was an absolute revelation. There should be more of it. Um, almost as if learning your speech and having it come from your heart helps with the delivery. <laughs> but we also heard from Douglas Ross who uh, and Anasawa, both of whom were keen to ensure that there was sprinklings of criticism throughout their tribute, if you can even call it a tribute to her, her time I think it was it.
2: definitely a tribute in the sense that they both made clear that, again, this was the Nicola Sturgeon era of politics, oh, that yeah, she was someone yeah. that dominated and defined Scottish politics in recent years. But like you say, that sprinkling of criticism, essentially saying that she had had this position of power and they were saying she hadn't used it mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that they would have wanted or they, she hadn't done the kind of right things in power. Um, I think Douglas Ross as well essentially saying that there were moments where she'd used her kind of her, her position, her time in office to further the political ends of her own party. But I suppose it's a delicate tightrope for them because they are opposition party leaders and you've obviously got to acknowledge someone has served a time in office, pay tribute to them in that regard. But we've just had that brutal FMQs. There are obviously problems they have with Nicola Sturgeon's time in office. Yeah. And I think it would be strange if they didn't acknowledge that. Um, so it is a, a strange tightrope to what to walk Um, I think one of the interesting things about it was just that being in that chamber I mean you were in as well we were both in the media gallery it was the fullest it's been in a a very long time public galleries as well all very full and you could see Nicola Sturgeon's sister Gillian actually sitting quite close to the media gallery Mm. and nodding along as as her sister kind of addressed the chamber Um, so it's Something to have her family, I think, in the public gallery as well. There was a sense of it being quite an occasion in Holyrood, and a sense of uh, this being the end of an era, I think.
1: Absolutely. Um, Peter Murrell notably not in attendance. No. Which is interesting, and not mentioned.
2: Not mentioned, though she did thank her family, but not mentioned by name. Um, I think, obviously we're speculating here, but I think if Peter Murrell had turned up today, he would obviously have been doorstep by journalists. So maybe that was part of the thinking there. We don't know. But yeah, I think that he was notable by his absence.
1: Absolutely. So let's move on uh, for the last part of this the podcast today and I just look at Nicola Sturgeon's legacy because it was mentioned in her uh, speech at the end of, of FMQs and also from, from the opposition. And I think, you know, Nicholas Sturgeon read out, I think in answer to both Douglas Ross and Anasar, a whole list of... Achievements that she considers that her government that has has undertaken um, and succeeded in gaining um, throughout their time in, in in power. But when it comes down to it, you know a lot of the stuff, which or, or some of which are very notable and important things. You know the baby box, minimum unit pricing on alcohol, etc. Not much of it is kind of overarching, strategically important. But it did seem like all of the opposition and also. Nicola Sturgeon seemed to agree that her legacy is likely to be her leadership during the pandemic. Do you think that's that's probably fair, that that's what most people, and argue with the history books, will remember her for?
2: I think that's absolutely the case. I think her leadership during the pandemic will be the defining feature of her time in office. I think you can, I mean, obviously, the we've, we haven't had the full inquiry into what happened, happened during the pandemic yet. There's a lot of stuff to pick over, a lot of things to criticise both the Scottish and UK governments over. But I don't think anyone can take away from Nicola Sturgeon her ability to communicate with the public. I don't think few other politicians could have communicated in the way that she did at that time, um, standing up You know, almost every day at one point, addressing the, addressing the country, putting across these messages that must have been extremely difficult to put across, things that people just don't really want to hear. Extraordinary times, genuinely unprecedented. And I think... Yeah, I think she will be remembered for that. And at a time, I think even her harshest critics, or certainly those who disagree with her politically, would have admired the way she certainly presented herself during the pandemic in those briefings. And it was such a difficult time, I think, for, for anyone in government. And I think that will be the defining feature. I think you're quite right to say that some of the other stuff, when she lists the achievements, some of them are... You know, less impressive than others. I think there's some of them, you know, the, the expansion of free child care, Scottish child payment, they have made a huge difference uh, to people's lives. But I think the opposition parties will also point to many things that haven't been done and things that haven't, uh, even things the Scottish government said they would do, such as, uh, substantially eliminating the attainment gap where progress has been extremely limited.
1: I think I, I always like to point this out because I think it's always important when you reflect on the Nicola Sturgeon's time as leader during the pandemic, is that you know you and I spent an awful lot of time, as did countless other journalists, sitting on Zoom, listening and asking her questions from mid-March 2023. It's three years to the day since we first went into lockdown. But certainly since mid, mid to late March 2020 to middle of 2021, these briefings were daily for the vast majority of that time. She deserves significant credit for fronting up during that time. I, yeah. I, th- I think that's something that, you know, we as the press give politicians a hell of a lot of, you know, crap for avoiding questions, evading responsibility, evading scrutiny, of which the SNP is guilty in spades. But during the pandemic, I think it's really important to say that she was she fronted up and she, she asked questions, many of which were inane, including some of my own, and put herself front and centre of, of the pandemic response. I think that is to be commended
2: well, as a politician. I mean, I, I remembered I'm sure you do too, just how exhausting it was Absolutely. as a journalist yeah. to go through that every single day, to report on it, to attend those Zoom briefings that were extremely lengthy, so much information was getting chucked out. Um, you were also going through the pandemic yourself, like Absolutely. everyone else, yeah. Had loved ones you were worried about, etc. It was such an exhausting time, and I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be uh, at the head of government at that time, making those decisions that are going to reverberate down the years, that are going to affect people's lives. Uh, and that are, you know, occasionally lives are genuinely in the balance. Um, and that's not to exonerate anyone in government or no. to lavish praise on them, because no. certainly they did things wrong. Yeah. It's just to state a fact that it was a completely extraordinary time to be in charge. And yeah, I think she does deserve some credit for that. And again, standing up, like you say, uh, so often, to do those press briefings was not something that was replicated down south.
1: Final question for you before we stop this week's podcast is Anasawa, uh, in a bit of a throwaway line, I think, in his, in his tribute to Nicola Sturgeon, said that none of her successors would live up to her. <laughs> do you think that's right?
2: Uh, I mean, it certainly. I mean, she. I suppose you had Alex Salmond, an extraordinary politician, you had Nicola Sturgeon, um, and they both dominated the scene for so long. It's hard to see how someone could come in and and replicate that. Having said that, you don't really know what's going to happen next. And it's something that I would... I mean, I was saying it to you earlier on today. I remember, uh, again, I wasn't covering politics at the time, but from what i have been told, when Ruth Davidson first took over the leadership of the Scottish Tory party, a lot of criticism over her performance. She then went on to become one of the leaders that defined the modern Scottish Conservative Party. Particularly the
1: Sturgeon era. During the Sturgeon era, you know, she was probably one of the few politicians to cut through Nicola Sturgeon's dominance.
2: Yeah, and it's people can come into these roles, they can uh, surprise you in a way, but certainly at the moment you wouldn't look at any of the contenders and say that they would, they would be able to kind of take on those shoes.
1: I certainly think, I, I think I've written this in the past, is that, you know, I, I do think the SNP is reversing to a vacuous kind of modern day leadership with whoever they pick. Um, I think, we're past the point now of political leaders who grew up out with the internet and grew without that understanding of social media and how how potent that can be, you know, a quick... Basically, you know, I'm talking about the stuff that you get where PMQs and FMQs basically turns into how well can you clip it for online rather than a back and forth and speeches are the same. I think we've, we're, we're past the point now with Nicola Sturgeon's resignation where we've got leaders who brought up with that traditional... You know, parliamentary approach to debate, and I think it's probably why certainly we'll will arguably never see anyone of Nicola Sturgeon, Alex Hammond, you know, you could extend that to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, David Cameron, you know, where the calibre of politician who know how to debate and know how to speak from the heart and in a way in front of people in that communicates perfectly and not just for a quick clip on social media. Yeah. I think that is. That's a telling and quite depressing way that politics has gone, but I definitely think it's happened.
2: Interesting. I think a final thought on this is we have also seen some of the damage that having a dominant figure in the party can cause with Nicola Sturgeon's resignation. She was, in many ways, it was a one-woman show. Um, She was the defining feature of the party and when she stood down, that really became noticeable and the parties descended into an element of chaos. Uh, so we have seen the damage that can cause. So maybe it's not a bad thing for the s p to try and shift away from that kind of dominance of a personality.
1: Absolutely. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on the Steamy. Tune in next week when we will have, oh, I mean, I'm making a, an assumption here, but I'm assuming we will have a new First Minister who's just had their new, their first First Minister's questions. We'll get the result from the s p leadership election on Monday and you'll hear from us potentially quite soon after that as well. And so thank you very much for joining us this week. Alex, thank you very much for your dispatch from London, and thank you very much at home for listening. Bye-bye.